Well, it's good to see our all spaces again. It's been 20 days, I think, July 1 to 20. We were in Fresno, California. Thank you for those of you who prayed. That was a great trip. It was a combination of rest and work, which is sometimes hard to do, but we had a good time of vacation. Um, we need to pray as a church more for uh, Matt and April Troop and the work they're doing in Fresno as far as they're trying to plant a church. Matt is um, a church planner there. And... Um, just such a different situation than here. And that's one of the reasons I spent the last two summers out there is just to get that opportunity to get that kind of experience that uh, we being more established, longer, uh, uh, we've been around a lot longer. So uh, being a more established church, and that's been a really fruitful experience for me. So thanks for praying and um, for us in our, in our time there. Well, we dive into Mark 13 this morning, and this has been no small challenge for me this week, especially late and getting back and then trying to prepare. Um, so let's pray together as we dive into this part of God's Word um, this morning. Father, we pause right now to thank you that there is a higher throne beyond what all this world has known, um, and that throne is where Jesus right now presently is sitting, and he is at your right hand, and he is ruling over this entire created universe and all the galaxies that are not part of this universe and all the galaxies that are yet untapped and never will be. He is sovereign over it all. And this morning, we want to get a peek here from your word. We want you to help us to see Jesus in a fresh way, in a way that we've, we've perhaps never seen him before, in a, in a way that, that captures our hearts um, to stay awake in this broken world as we wait for him to return again. So please, uh, cause our souls to be made alive again. Cause our hearts to be made eager for his coming. Cause our lives to be transformed and our priorities to be readjusted in light of the Jesus we see in this passage and what he tells us about when he's coming. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, go back with me for a moment to World War II. I don't know if anyone is in here. There's a few old enough who lived through it. Um, but remember when the Allied powers arrived on the beach in Normandy, France, on June 6, 1944, with some 500 ships and 160,000 troops, initiating the Western Allied effort in an attempt to liberate mainland Europe from Nazi domination. It was transparently obvious when those 500 ships and those 160,000 troops hit that French beach, war was over. When they were successfully able to establish that beachhead in that country, D-Day was secured. Now on the Eastern Front, the Germans were making gains but principally, when the Allied powers established that beachhead, the rest was just a mop-up operation. Germans would have a little burst here and there. There'd be the Battle of the Bulge. But, for all accounts, the war's over. Chapter 13 in the Gospel of Mark forms the longest block of sustained teaching of Jesus in this entire Gospel. You know, God, we've seen over and over, Mark is a real fast pace. It's focused on the works of Christ, not so much the words of Christ. 
But here we have a, a final speech of sorts. Jesus is in Jerusalem. We saw a couple of weeks ago when Jonathan preached on the triumphal entry. He's in Jerusalem. He's been to the temple. He's preached in the temple. And now he is giving a final speech to his disciples prior to his um, the plot to kill Jesus happens. Jesus is anointed to Bethany. And as we're going to see, the Passover happens and then it's straight to the cross from there. So he's giving this final speech here in Mark 13. Jesus is on his way to the cross. At the end of this week, Jesus is going to die. Then he's going to rise again, and he's going to return back to heaven. Jesus knows, though, that his people are going to face many painful things in this world, and he wants to prepare his friends for what they're going to face when he's gone. Jesus assures them that he's going to come back again, and he's going to come and judge the world. But, in the meantime, they must expect hard things are going to happen, and they need to trust Him. Jesus' death and resurrection that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks is D-Day. The war's over. When Jesus dies, the beachhead in the kingdom of darkness is established. War's over. The war is over, brothers and sisters. We live in a time of mop-up. Christ's reign has been established in this world. He has come, He has lived, He has died, He has defeated and bound Satan. But V-Day has not yet arrived. The armistice has not been signed. Christ's reign is still being contested. This passage in Mark 13 is about V-Day and what to expect after D-Day. In other words, it's about living in this time between Christ's first coming and His second coming. Jesus responds to two questions by four disciples. We notice in verse 1 and 2, they have just come out of the temple, this great temple. I wish you could see it. I've seen pictures of it that, that, as far as the way they think it was modeled. Brothers and sisters, this temple filled, filled 12 football fields. This temple was enormous. And they come out of this temple, and they just can't help but marvel at it. The stones are huge, enough to fill sometimes half of this room. And the disciples are looking around and saying, what an amazing temple. What wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings filling 12 football fields. And Jesus looks at them and says in verse 2, see all these buildings? This is all coming down. And then they move out of the temple and go over to the Mount of Olives, which is across the Crops the opposite the temple, and James and Peter and John, obviously, this is a pretty amazing prediction. This great structure, the, not just one structure, all these buildings that are forming this large temple complex, all of this is coming down. And they, they ask him a question in verse 4. They say, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him privately. Four of his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, tell us, 
when when's this going to happen? When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, Mark 13 parallels two other gospel passages, Matthew 24 and Luke 21. They're basically describing the same situation. So I want you to hold your finger with me in Mark 13 and go back to Matthew 24, about 20 pages or so back in my Bible. Uh, Matthew 24, and notice the question that the disciples ask in verse 3 and 4, or verse 3 of Matthew 24. Describing the same situation, Matthew records, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Slightly different than Mark puts it. Mark says, what will be, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Mark is focusing almost exclusively on this temple and its destruction, and Matthew is talking about both the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ and the end of the age. So we need to take that into account because Jesus is going to address his second coming, not just the destruction of the temple here in Mark 13. So let's go back now to Mark 13 and see how Jesus responds to this question. That's, that's going to be the essence of what we're going to discuss this morning is Jesus' response to this disciples, these disciples' questions. What are going to be the signs of the coming destruction of this temple. When's it going to happen? And when is your second coming going to be? Because in their minds, those two things are virtually occurring at the same time. When Jesus looks at the center of biblical religion at that time, the temple of God in Jerusalem, and Jesus says that temple's coming down, in their minds they think, Oh, that's when you're coming again. When that temple comes down. And Jesus is going to take this entire chapter to tell them, when that temple comes down, don't think I'm coming yet. Those are going to be but the birth pains of my coming. But the baby's not coming out yet. Just the birth pains. So in the first part of this chapter, from verses... I just want to kind of give you an outline of where I'm going first, and then we'll dive in. From verse 5 all the way down to verse 13, Jesus is talking about things that are going to be characteristic of this entire time between his first coming and second coming. That is, from the time he rose from the dead, or from the time he entered the world and died and rose from the dead, and went back to heaven, till the time he's coming again, which no man knows the hour of. So verses 5 to 13 are going to describe what this world is like. Then, following that, from verses 14 all the way down to verse 23, he's going to talk about the destruction of this temple. And then, in verse 24, he's going to make a transition. You notice it says the word but. He's going to make a transition into talking about his second coming, which they assumed was at the same time as the destruction of the temple. And he's going to talk about his second coming from verse 24 all the way to 27. And then he's going to draw some lessons in verse 28 all the way down through verse 37 as to what we're to, to think about in light of all, what he's teaching. Now, sometimes it's not clear which one Jesus means. However, the two events are similar. So sometimes it's not clear whether or not Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple or whether or not he's referring to his second coming. But the two events are similar because they're both judgments. 
Christ is coming a second time to save His people and judge the world. But God's judgment on Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple prefigures God's ultimate judgment on the world. And Jesus wants His followers to be ready for both. Now, if you came in this morning and you have any familiarity with Mark 13 at all, you might think I'm going to answer all the end times questions. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. Um, I am going to give you the outline and exegesis of the passage and walk through the interpretation of things as I best understand them. But the per- get, note this, the purpose of this passage is not to answer all your end time questions. Here's the way commentator James Edwards puts it. He says, the purpose of Mark 13 is not primarily to provide a timetable or blueprint for the future, so much as it is to exhort readers to faithful discipleship in the present. My job is to preach to you the burden of Mark 13. And the burden of Mark 13 is Jesus telling you to be faithful disciples in the present, not to provide you a timetable or blueprint for everything that's going to happen in the future, although he does do some of that. Edwards continues and says, The point of Mark 13 is not so much to inform as to admonish. In other words, not so much to give you information as to tell you how to live. Not to provide you knowledge of some sort of arcane, distant, nebulous matters, but rather to instill obedience in believers. So Jesus is after your obedience this morning. He's after instilling obedience in you for living in this time between his resurrection and his coming again. I want to answer four questions this morning. This is my outline. I'll go ahead and give it to you ahead of time so you know where we're going. Question number one. What will life in this world be like before Jesus comes back? What should we expect life in this world to be like before Jesus comes back? Question number two. What will it be like when Jesus comes back? Question number three. How do we know Jesus is coming back? And question number four. What impact does this have on how we should live now? So those are my four questions. Let's Dive right in and get going with question number one. What will life in this world be like before Jesus comes back? This is answered in verses 5 all the way through verse 13. And let's look at those verses. Before we dive into those verses specifically, I want you to notice a a, a distinction here. So look at verse 6. Or sorry, verse 5. Jesus says, and Jesus began to say to them. So he's answering their question about when these signs will be and when all this is going to happen. He says, see that no one leads you astray. And then he comes down and stops at verse 13. Verse 13 says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then verse 14, he makes a transition. But when you see the abomination of desolation, we'll get into that more in a minute. But there is a transition between things that are going to characterize this present world before Jesus comes back, and a specific, sharp birth pain that's going to happen at the destruction of Jerusalem. So let's just kind of walk through the text here. Here's what to expect during life in this world, the entire period between Jesus' first and second coming, and I have one, two, three, four, seven things to point out, seven characteristics of what life in this world is going to be like. First one, subtle deception. Subtle deception is going to characterize life in this world. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Now, isn't that an amazing way to start? They just ask a question, when is all this stuff 
going to happen? And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is not necessarily an answer to that question, but rather an admonition. Be careful who you listen to. See to it that no one leads you astray. And here's why. Verse 6, many are going to come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, I don't think this primarily means that people, it does mean that people are going to come and claim to be Jesus Christ himself. But that's not fundamentally what he says. Because if you notice in Mark 13, verse 21, he says, And then if anyone says, you look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. He's talking about anointed teachers that claim that they're from God. So he's saying that there's going to be subtle deception, that people are going to come into the world and claim that they have a message from God. It's not necessarily claiming that they're Jesus himself, but rather that they are he, they are the Christ, they are anointed by God to share a message about when he's coming again and all these things. And he says they're going to lead many people astray. Now, if Jesus has to warn us about deception it, we, we need to understand that these people are probably not going to come to us with a, with a horn, horn sticking out of their head with a tail and a pitchfork and says, I belong to Satan, T-shirt. Right? If, if he has to warn them to not be deceived, these people are going to be tricky and crafty and not obvious. They're not going to say, they're not going to come on the scene and say, hey, here's a great big hunk of heresy that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Believe it and damn your soul. They're not going to do that. They're going to be people that people look at and say, sounds right to me. They're going to be people that are listening to them saying, yeah, yeah. And they're going to have lives that don't look strange and weird. Now, subtle deception can really happen in two ways, can it? It can happen by, um, it ultimately happens by distracting people from the truth. And it can happen by either downplaying doctrine, downplaying the role of truth, like, you know, we don't, we, we, it's an e emphasizing the modern, the new. We don't really have to hold to those things so tightly anymore. I mean, that's old stuff. We're more, more modern people. We, you know, we've come a long way. We don't, who believes the Bible anymore? All, it's going to be more, but it's real popular. Well, that's widespread in the world today. That's all over the place. That's subtly deceiving everybody. But there is another, there's a religious kind of deception, too. Here's the way D.A. Carson puts it. Listen to this very carefully. He says, The devil may work through people with a real love of traditionalism who do not really understand the age they are addressing at all. So, we can, so people can be deceivers and be people who just really, really capitulate to culture and give in, and people who really, really withdraw from culture and just don't engage it and maintain their traditions. Carson goes on and says, They are very interested in theological doctrine and sermonizing, but forget that there are people out there. And somehow the church can be led down a primrose path of dry intellectualism that is equally damning, all for the sake of upholding pure doctrine. Carson says that, and he's a theologian for a living. And brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of that. Right there, there is a fear of 
dry intellectual traditionalism that forgets that people are in the world. And that is just as subtly deceiving as someone who says that doctrine is not important. Get that. So there's going to be subtle deception. Secondly, there's going to be international conflict. Verse 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. So, there is going to be international conflict. If Iraq gets solved, something else is coming. There are going to be wars and rumors of wars and ongoing international conflict and political struggle till Jesus comes back. These things must take place. So if our hope is fundamentally in political systems or economic reform, it's not going to happen in this world. Does that mean we don't care about political systems? Does that mean we don't care about economic reform? No, but we do not put our trust there. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots, horses, that's army, that's military might, that's political power. It's not going to happen, even for the nation of Israel. Talking about, that's a psalmist saying that. We don't even put our ultimate trust in our armies. And God promised to fight with us, and he made no such promises to America. So we need to think through that and make sure that we're not alarmed. Jesus is giving us a clear, clear teaching here. He's saying, listen, international conflict's going to be what you see on Fox News, what they're talking about on talk radio all the time, this problem, this problem, this problem. Don't be surprised. Expect that it doesn't happen more. Nuclear war, terrorism on the increase, it's going to keep going. There's, that's going to happen till the end of the age. Till Jesus comes back. So not only will there be subtle deception, there will be international conflict. Thirdly, there's going to be natural disasters. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, verse 8. Tsunamis, Katrinas are going to happen all the time. There are going to be earthquakes that we hear about in Japan. There's going to be earthquakes that we hear about in California. There's going to be earthquakes that we hear about in South America. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be hurricanes. There's going to be cyclones. There's going to be things that happen to Haiti over and over and over and over again until Christ comes back. That's because this earth is under a curse. This earth has been cursed by God because of our sin. That's back in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And Romans 8 predicts what this earth is doing right now. This earth is heaving. This earth is groaning for Jesus to come back. This earth is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God, for the Christians to be made obvious, for Jesus to return, make all things new. That's what this earth is doing. And earthquakes and famines and those kind of things are what Jesus calls birth pains. They're, they're groaning. They're difficult. They're contractions within the earth itself that is longing for something to happen. Now, what is it longing for? It's longing for the baby. So when big trouble happens in the world, some people think, that's the end of the world. The end of the world is near. Jesus is adamantly telling us right now, it's not yet. It's not necessarily a sign of the end of the world. It's like when you have a baby. Some of you mothers know, all of you, some of you, all of you mothers know this. And guys, we don't have a clue, so we need to sympathize with our wives. 
we you all know deeply you can you can you can identify with this passage in many ways far better than us men the first pains tell you that you must be ready but it's a long time before that baby comes out but the pains tell you to get ready right doctor says call me when the contractions are so many minutes apart get to the hospital but you're going to be there for a while <laughs> sometimes hours Sometimes 30 hours. It's going to be a while before you actually have that baby. That's what Jesus is teaching with this metaphor. He's trying to say, listen, those pains are going to come. That international conflict is going to happen. Those natural disasters are going to happen. That subtle deception is going to happen. You're going to think the end is coming. No, I, I'm just saying, you must be ready for the birth, for my second coming. But it's still going to be a while. Wars and disasters tell us to be ready for the end of the world, but they don't mean that the end will come. Number four. Ongoing persecution. Subtle deception, international conflict, natural disasters, ongoing persecution. Verse 9. But be on your guard. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You know, that verse is immensely comforting to our brothers and sisters in India, our brothers and sisters in China, our brothers and sisters in Indonesia, our brothers and sisters who face incredible persecution because of their faith in Christ. When they have to stand before governors, when they have to stand before police officers, when they have to stand before whatever, religious zealot leaders, and testify about Jesus Christ, and have no idea what to say in that moment, these words become very precious to them. That that's not one thing they have to worry about because Jesus is going to be near them in those times too. And then verse 13, you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. So we have no reason to think. We live in an absolutely unprecedented time in church history. We live in a land that the church has never known since the church started. If you just study history, we have never, ever lived in a land like the United States of America. The church has never had the privileges and the freedoms and all of that. It's been unprecedented, and, and we should be very grateful to God. We have been born in the time. We didn't choose our time of our birth. We didn't choose the place of our birth. God chose United States, 1900s, year 2000 for us. And we are enjoying that right now. But here's the thing, and we see it right now. We have no reason to think that our relative freedoms are going to continue. Short of international revival and the renewing grace of God, which we should pray for which we should pray for. But if we are hoping somehow that we're just going to kind of like maintain a cultural morality that we're, you know, and that we're going to, we're going to work for that and try for that, and we, we should. We should pray for that. We should labor to be salt and light in the various places that God has called us to, to affect whatever change we can at whatever level God has given us. But we need to expect that that this, this period, this slice in history that we've enjoyed as the United States of America, apart from international revival, is just going to go into a more persecuted 
condition. We are going to be a persecuted people. Um, this, the, the majority of the people in this country are in, in the next two generations are not going to be predominantly white. They are going to be, I mean, we see the cultural shift already happening in Europe. It's coming to the United States. In the next several generations, the minorities that are present in this country will be the majority culture. And those minorities are not being influenced by anything relative to Christianity. They're being influenced by Islam and other world religions and things like that, which in some ways are very hostile to Christianity. So we should expect that. We should embrace that as Christians. And we should see it as an opportunity for the gospel because it's exactly what Jesus predicted. So ongoing persecution is the norm. It's the norm for this age. It's, it is the norm for our brothers and sisters around the world. It is the norm. Um, and we don't need to forget that. Not only will there be ongoing persecution, there's going to be family division. Verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Isn't that awful? Parents and children are going to be responsible for killing one another. Brothers are going to kill each other. That happened in Genesis 4. Father will kill his child. Child's going to rise up against his parents, have them put to death. That's going to be normal. There's going to be serious moral breakdown to the point where families are going to be killing each other. It just gets worse. Not only will families break down, but there's going to be widespread apostasy. Now, if you don't know what apostasy, apostasy is just a, a bigger word that means people who are going to depart from their Christianity. They would, they'll claim to be Christians, and then they'll later depart from it because times are going to get too tough. The deception's going to get to them. The conflict's going to worry them. The natural disasters are going to bother them. The persecution's going to cause them to give up. The divisions in the family are just going to cause them to throw in the towel, and they're going to forsake the faith. That's what Jesus predicts in verse 13. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, Jesus tells us even more about this in verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. There's the reason Jesus gives for why people won't endure to the end. People who do not endure to the end, following Jesus, being disciples of his, the reason they don't endure is because their love grows cold. It's an affection thing. It's a heart thing. It's not a knowledge thing. It's a love thing. And Jesus says there's a connection between our true love of Christ and love for Christ and our falling away. So here's the thing. This is what it means to stay awake. It doesn't fundamentally mean, you know, don't fall asleep physically. What it means is keep yourself in a frame where Jesus is your absolute treasure and love. Keep yourself, your heart, in a place that if everything else goes, family goes, comfort goes, peace goes, Jesus is enough, more than enough. That is the only way, brothers and sisters, that you have any guarantee that you will not fall away. Because lawlessness, he says, when lawlessness is increased, when things get tougher, what happens? People get loveless. Lawlessness 
leads to lovelessness. And he says, if you want to, if you want to endure to the end, love Jesus. Love, love, love him. Get to know him, follow him, hope in him, trust in him, examine yourself. If this left America, if conflict, you thought about thinking through all those things that are promised in this age, the deception, the conflict, the division, the disasters, does that make you uncomfortable? Of course it should to some degree. But does it rock your foundation? You say, I can't imagine that happening. If that ever happens to me, I don't know what I'd do. If you feel that way, it's because you're not building on Christ. You're lo- you're, you need to grow deeper in love with Him and build your foundation deep in Him. And we're going to talk about how to do that a little bit later in the sermon. So, we see all this, but we also see one really great thing <laughs> that is happening in this age. Notice verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed... To all the nations. This is God's ordained climate for the advancement of the message of Jesus Christ. He says it's when these conditions are there that the gospel will be advanced in unbelievable ways. So that, isn't that what we want? Then we should not fear this. We shouldn't be gluttons for this. Like, yeah, I can't wait till these killings start happening, or whatever. This persecution increases. No, because in a minute, he's going to just tell them, when it happens, go to the mountains, get out of here. There's nothing noble, necessarily, about standing in the face of, of opposition. It's how you handle it. And we'll talk about that more in a second, too. But the gospel's going to be proclaimed right in the teeth of the enemy. Right there. And God's going to save people. Right there. So this climate is the most fertile for the gospel. And don't we see that throughout church history? When is the church advancing the most? When it's being most persecuted. When it's suffering the most. Why? Because that is where Jesus is most clearly seen. When, when whoa, these people aren't hoping in peace. They're comfortable even when the country's falling apart. They're comfortable when there's false teaching all around. They're comfortable when disasters are coming. They're comfortable when persecution's happening. They're comfortable when their family's leaving him. Who is this Jesus? He must be something great. That's why the gospel advances in that climate. And that's why, in a sense, it's so hard to evangelize in America. Now, it's not impossible. We're fruit of it. <laughs> right? It's not, it's not impossible. But the problem is, is that in some ways, it, it, there's too many props, too many things that are out there that are so easy to say, yeah, you're just Jesus plus. He's there in your whole thing of peace and you know, family unity, you really love your family, and it's the absence of conflict and all that stuff. And But it's when all that stuff goes that Jesus is shown to be really precious. Now, by the way, this is the question I'm going to spend most time on. So if you think, wow, you spent a long time on this question, I'm going to, I'm going to get going a little bit faster. Um, now, in verse 14, Jesus moves in to a particularly sharp birth pain that's going to come, and that's going to be the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. You say, how do I know? In verse 14, he doesn't say the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. How do you get destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. out of that? Because of the parallel passage in Luke 21. Would you look there with me? Luke 21 to the right. 
Um, next gospel over, Luke 21 and verse 20. Look at verse 19 so you see the general context. We just talked about enduring to the end. Verse 19, Jesus says, by your endurance you will gain your lives. You'll be saved. And then verse 20, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. The abomination of desolation. The abomination is not talking about the desolation itself. It's talking about what caused the desolation to happen in the first place. The abominations that are being committed uh, in the temple and in, and in Jerusalem in general. And that's been the ministry of Jesus. He's walked in and turned over tables in the place. So, Jesus says there's going to be a particularly sharp birth pain that's going to come in their lifetime. In the lifetime of the people that he's speaking to, and it's going to be the destruction of that temple, and those buildings are going to come down. And he says when, they're, when it's surrounded by armies, who's the army? Rome. Now, Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived through this period. He lived from 33 A.D. to 100 A.D., and he writes about this very event in his history. And here's what he says. I'll just read you an excerpt from it. Throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence, and close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. Now, family division's coming, right? They're going to be fighting and killing each other over food, and they, and they were. No respect was paid even to the dying. The ruffians searched them in case they were concealing something in their clothes, some food, or just pretending to be near death. Then listen to this. Gaping with hunger like mad dogs, lawless gangs went staggering and reeling through the streets, battering upon the doors like drunkards, and be so bewildered that they brought into the same house two or three times in an hour. They broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse which even animals would reject, was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating belts and shoes, and the leather stripped off their sandals. Tufts of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles. It was an absolutely terrible, terrible event. And Jesus tells them in verse 15, that if you're on your roof, when you hear the armies are being surrounded, don't even go down to your house. Skip the roofs and get out of town. If you're in the field and you hear the armies are coming, don't even go back and get your cloak. Head to the mountains. When you are in, um, if you pray that, he says, pray that it won't even happen on a Sabbath. Why, won't it ha why does he want you to pray that it won't happen on a Sabbath? The gates are closed. There's no food available. If the gates are closed, you can't get out of town fast enough. Pray that it won't be in winter. So it won't, there won't be difficult passage. He's saying this event, this event that he's describing in verse 14 all the way down roughly to verse 23 um, has, has, has taken place. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God that this event that Jesus predicted about skipping off housetops and that kind of stuff happened in 70 A.D. within the lifetime of the people that he was talking to. But the principles... Um, as we saw in the first part of the chapter, will continue those, those, those characteristics that 
characterize that age. So that's question number one, what life's going to be like. One simple word, H-A-R-D. It's going to be hard. Number two, question two, and these will I'll move much quicker through these three questions. Number two, what will it be like when Jesus comes back? What will it be like? Verse 24 marks the transition. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, um, I don't have time to go into great detail about verse 24 and what Jesus says, what he intends to mean by, in those days after that tribulation, I'm going to come back. So in other words, after the question that would obviously raise in our mind is, okay, Mark, you just said this event happened in 70 AD. Well, why did Jesus say here that in those days after that tribulation, he's going to come back? Well, didn't he? So he came back in 70 AD, right? He came back right after that. No. And I'll just give you a real quick, I can't spend a whole lot of time on it, but I'll give you a real quick answer as to why when Jesus talks about his coming, he's including the entire age, even the period after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And that's back in Luke 21. Don't turn there. Let me just read it to you very briefly. Listen to what Jesus says right before in his account in Luke chapter 21. He says, But when you see Jerusalem uh, surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. Then skipping down to verse 24, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Listen to this. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. You notice that? That's inserted between him saying, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen, and my second coming. This, this phrase called the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. That, that's a phrase that means the entire period before he comes back. So Jesus even expects there's going to be more time after the destruction of Jerusalem before I come again. So that's we, we don't need to be alarmed by that. In those days after that tribulation, he's going to come. It just means after the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled, after this age has run its course and Jesus, comes, and Jesus is ready to come back. So Luke makes clear that this includes the entire period, not just the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, thankfully, we sung a great song about what Jesus' coming is going to be back for believers. There's a higher throne, captures it perfectly. It does my explanation entirely because that's exactly what Jesus is writing this for. He's writing this to comfort believers. There's a higher throne than all this world is known where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. The second verse, um, before the sun will stand, made faultless through the land, believing ones find promise, grace, salvation comes. And there we'll find our home. Our life before the throne will honor him in perfect song where we belong. He'll wipe each tear-stained eye as thirst and hunger die. The lamb becomes our shepherd king. We'll, we'll reign with him. The Gettys have done a great job of capturing what the essence of the second coming is like for believers, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying there's going to be signs in the heavens. There's going to be huge, obvious things, which is one of the reasons he warns against deception. He's like, look, it's not going to happen in a closet, guys. It's not so he says, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, Jesus is over here, come see him. Or, hey, he's over in Asia right now. He's in, he's in Latin America. He's there. He's in Brazil, in the capital. So don't worry about that. There's going to be massive signs in the heavens. Nobody's going to be able to, to, uh, to shake it. 
And then he says he's going to come. The sun will actually appear riding on the clouds with great power and glory. I don't think people are going to miss that. <laughs> I mean, if that happened already, where's the history of that, you know? So coming in the clouds with great power and glory, but notice why he's coming. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He's coming to bring us home. He's coming for us. He's coming for his people. That's first on his mind in his second coming. Before any of his ju- and judgment is going to happen. You've read the Gospels and read other accounts in Scripture. Judgment is coming. But what's going to happen first? Jesus is going to get us. He's going to, if we've gone to be with him, we're coming back with him. And for those brothers and sisters that we may have on earth at that time, we're coming for them too. Before any of that judgment takes place, the angels are going to be dispatched and he's going to gather up all of his people. So that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be devastating. It's going to be, it's indescribable. Question number three, how do we know that Jesus is coming back. This is the lesson of the fig tree in verse 28 through 31. Notice what he says. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. That may be a reference predominantly to the destruction of Jerusalem. I tend to think it is. However, the principle applies to the entire age, the entire period that we're living in now. Meaning what? He gives an analogy from nature. He says, is nature reliable? When you look at that plant, and that plant starts to give out its, he says, when that branch becomes tender and it starts to put out its leaves, you know what season it is. You know what season it is. How do you know I'm coming back? Do you know that, you know what season it is when when that plant comes? Nature's reliable like that? Okay. Well, that's when you see these signs and these kind of things taking place, international conflict, family division, wars and rumors of wars, natural, all the stuff we're seeing, just mark it up. I'm coming back, okay? I'm coming back. That's what he says, reliability of nature. But he doesn't just rely on nature. He says, believe me. Notice what he says in verse 30 and 31. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Now, this generation is predominantly a reference to the generation that's living right at that time. And all these things he's talking about is these things related to this temple destruction. He's saying, this generation, you guys listening to me, this is going to happen in less than 30 years. 37 years from when he's speaking these very words. 37 years later, it's going to happen. Now, they said this generation is not going to take away, pass away until all these things take place. But listen to this. Heaven and earth, verse 31, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he says, how do we know Jesus is coming back? Fundamental answer, Jesus told us he was. And heaven and earth will pass away before his word does. Everything will go into non-existence or be destroyed before Jesus does not fulfill his promises. So we can bank on it. He's coming back. And now finally, question four, what impact does this have on how we should live now? Three things, watch, wait, and work. First of all, watch. Jesus says, 
Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son of Man, but only the Father. And definitely not the guy I heard in Fresno on the radio that predicted in May of next year. He got it wrong in 1994. <laughs> said, we know more stuff now. So no one knows. But on guard, be on guard, keep awake. Then he says in verse 37, keep awake, stay awake. Here's what J.C. Ryle says to us about how we should live right now, knowing what we know about the teaching of Jesus here in Mark 13. Ryle says, we are to live always on our guard. We are to keep our hearts in an eager, lively state, prepared at any time to meet Jesus. Is your heart in an eager, lively state prepared to meet Jesus even right now? We are to beware of anything that would weaken our love for Christ. We are to beware of anything like spiritual lethargy, dullness, or deadness. The friends we have, the way we use our time, the things that weaken awareness of Jesus' return should be marked, noted, avoided. That's going to be different for us. But here's a very practical thing. Anything in your life that weakens your love for Christ, your desire to be with Christ, your desire to meet Christ, that contributes to spiritual lethargy in your life, that contributes to dullness, deadness, whether it be friends you have, the way you spend your time, the things that weaken your awareness from Jesus, you need to avoid those things as if your soul is at stake, because it is. Do not play games with the things that weaken love for Christ. So watch. Second thing, wait. That means pray. Notice the illustration that Jesus gives in verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. We're to keep up habits of regular prayer. We're to keep close contact with Jesus and not allow long periods of time to come in and lapse where we're not in prayer, where we're not communing with God, where we're not even talking to the Lord, so that prayer almost becomes a strange thing. We're never to get to the point where relating to Christ becomes strange. You can sit in here every Sunday and be strange in relationship to Jesus. Because when it actually comes down to you walking with Him, it's strange. But when you're in the big building and everybody's sitting here listening, it's, it, that's easy. But it's the day-to-day -day walking in fellowship with Him that, that, that is key to our waiting and watching. And finally, work. We're not just to sit on our hands. We're not just to, you know, we are to pray, come Lord Jesus, but we're not to just sit here and wait for it happens. Paul condemns the Thessalonians for doing stuff like that. The Thessalonian Christians thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. They, weren't, they didn't listen to the apostles very well, or Jesus himself. Um, but they were, they were thinking, so we don't have to get jobs, we're just going to sit in our house and wait real spiritual thing to do. Spiritual to wait for Jesus, not when it calls you to be lazy. So we are to work. We are all servants of a great master, and he has given every person, every one of us, his work and expects that work to be done. We're to labor to glorify God, each in the particular area that God has assigned us to. Um, there's something for every one of us to do. We're to, we're to each strive to live as salt and light where the Lord assigns us, being faithful representatives of our Savior and to honor Him by conscientious consistency in all of our daily conversation in life. But here's the, here's the three main things that we're to work hard at doing. As we go about fulfilling our various callings in the world, God has not called us to all do the same thing in the same way. We're sent out 
dispersed into lots of different areas of life. But here's what we need to keep in mind, the primary reason that God has put us there. It's to work, labor for his glory in such a way as we earn a hearing to endure suffering, because we'll get it. <laughs> we'll get it if we're, if we're laboring like Christians are. And that, that won't just come from our words. That will come from our character as well. We're to endure suffering when necessary. Sometimes it's time to flee. Sometimes it's time to stay. We see that in this passage. But we're to endure suffering in whatever field God has called us. We're to announce the gospel. Announce the gospel. Open our mouths and testify to the gospel. And we're to endure to the end. Those are the things we have to work on is working on keeping up love for Christ in the midst of all of our various callings, embracing suffering as we announce the gospel, and enduring to the end. Now let me close with a couple questions. Are you on the job, or are you sleeping? Are you on the job, or are you sleeping? Jesus tells us that as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What were the days of Noah like? How many people thought Noah was out of his mind? Why are you building a big boat in your yard, dude? And why are you, like, all of a sudden becoming like a zookeeper? <laughs> Bringing the animals in. And he just told them, rain's coming, buddy. Judgment's coming. And people were marrying and giving in marriage and having parties and watching TV and playing sports. And all that stuff was happening. And uh, one day, kid was kicking a soccer ball in the field. Parents were sitting there cheering him on. And it started to rain. So it's time to come off the field. So they came off the field. Boy, it's starting to rain real hard. So they had to cancel the game. Went home. Woke up the next morning. Water's in their house. And it, has it started raining again? No, Dad, it never stopped last night. Hmm. Well, pick up the video game console off the floor. We don't want to get wet. Lay down at night, wake up the next morning, it's bedside. Splashing water on both sides. I don't think this rain's stopping. A week later, they're all dead. That's what the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like. It's not going to be this alarmist thing. It's going to be people are going to be living their normal life, and all of a sudden, it's going to get real bad for them. So what's so amazing is how ordinary this all is. Now let me give you good news. If you're here this morning and this scares you to death, let me, let me give you an encouragement. Jesus' first coming, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, he came first to take judgment before he comes to give judgment. He's coming to give judgment, but he, his whole first coming was about taking judgment. He came to take judgment for us. That's why he was sent. That's why he came into the world. That's what the cross is all about, him taking judgment for us so that when he comes back, we can be among those that he's coming back for. So I would call you to come to Christ. I would call you to repent of your sin, believe in Jesus Christ, become a disciple of him, join the church of Jesus Christ, be a part of the people of God. And let's 
Brothers and sisters, keep waiting, keep watching, keep working. There's a lot of work to be do. There's a lot of work to be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, teaching from your word, which is so helpful to us in terms of um, how to think about our lives in this world. It's so real. Thank you, Jesus, for being so honest with us, for not sugarcoating anything. You gave us the most bitter pills to swallow right here. And all because you love us and because you care for us and because you want us to endure to the end and because you don't want us to be surprised and you don't want us to be alarmed. This text is an expression of your care for us. This text is an expression of your love for your people. And this text is also an expression of your love for those who are not yet your people, who have not yet become disciples, who have not yet become Christians. And we ask that this would have good effects in their lives as well. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the hope that it holds out. Thank you for the realism that it holds out. Help us, God, to endure the end. Help our love not to grow cold. As lawlessness increases, may our love increase, not decrease. And may we all endure to the end and help each other to that end. We can't do it by ourselves. You've called us to be a church. And one of the ways that we help each other endure to the end is by encouraging one another day after day so that none of us are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So help us to recognize that we have a calling to each other to help one another endure. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our judgment. We pray in your name. Amen.